our first reading is on page 6, and we are in Genesis chapter 4. Starting at verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mehajael, and Mehajael was the father of Methushel, and Methushel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And then, let me invite you to flip to page 1074. And we are in Romans 8, sorry, John 8. And we're starting at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we should be set free? 
Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Mary, thank you very much for reading to us. Well done with those those names. It's everyone's nightmare, isn't it? Getting a, a reading with all those names in it. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness that you, you don't leave us in the dark. You speak to us. You speak to us through your word. And now as we, uh, as we look at it together, please will you give us ears to hear and, and hearts to trust you, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I, if I ask you at this moment to, to grab a pen and, and draw me a picture of a monster... I wonder what you, you would draw. What would it look like? I don't know. Maybe, maybe red flashing eyes or horns or sharp gnashing teeth. What would you draw? Well, here's what my daughter drew when I asked her. Um, you might think, wow, kind of looks like her dad, doesn't it? But, um, but no, we, we look at it. We can tell what it is, can't we? Because we all know what a monster looks like. But what if we don't? In 1961, the journalist Hannah Arendt was sent to report on the war crimes trial of Adolf Eichmann, a Nazi official and one of the chief organisers of the Holocaust, the, the systematic murder of millions of Jewish people. And what shocked her most as she watched Eichmann at the trial was, was that he wasn't what she was expecting. He didn't look like a monster. What Aaron saw is there in the dock was, was someone, she said, terrifyingly normal. The deeds were monstrous, she wrote, but the doer was quite ordinary, commonplace, neither demonic nor monstrous. And as a result of that experience, Arendt coined this phrase, the banality of evil. She realised that, that the kind of people capable of doing the most terrible things, well, they didn't look like monsters. They often looked banal, ordinary. They looked like you and me. And I think that's helpful to remember as we look at the story of Cain from Genesis 4. It's, um, on, verse, it's on page 6 if you want to flick back to it. Last week, as Matt said, we began a series working our way through these early chapters of Genesis to find out what they teach us about the problem of sin, about what's most fundamentally wrong with us as human beings. But I think what's hard for many of us as, as we get to Genesis 4 is, well, we already know the story. We already know that he's a monster. Cain, he's the killer of Abel, isn't he? He's a standout bad apple. Only what if he's not? What if what the Bible's trying to show us is just how terrifyingly normal 
Cain is. Not an evil exception, but very much like you and me. Here in verse 1, did you notice Cain is the very first baby born to the human race? And his birth, it, well, it's greeted by great excitement, isn't it? Like the arrival of a baby so often is. We've had a number of babies born into our church family recently. They're lovely. But what does it tell us? That the very first baby is also the very first murderer. Well, I think it tells us that Adam and Eve's betrayal of their creator back in that garden that we looked at last week from Genesis 3, that their sin as representatives of the whole of humanity that would follow, that that sin has poisoned human nature at the core. And if that's true, well then Cain's problem is our problem. Something monstrous has happened to all of us. And usually it's not obvious. I don't think it was for Cain. Cain grows up to be a hard-working, upstanding man. He's a farmer. Did you notice that? In verse 2. And do you know how hard farmers work? How early they have to get up to grow the food that ends up on my plate? Cain was hard-working. And he was religious too. Do you see that? In verse 3. He doesn't miss bringing his offering. He'd be a regular week by week at church. In fact, you might often end up sitting next to him. And now at this point, don't turn and look at the person next to you. That that wouldn't be a good idea. It would be awkward. But you get the idea, don't you? Cain didn't look like a monster. He looked just like you and me. And if we miss that, well then we miss that what the Lord tries to show Cain here about his sin, he's trying to show us too. Because we're really not very different. So let's look together at three things this chapter teaches us about our sin. And we'll find them summarised for us at the end of verse 7. We're going to see how sin crouches, how it destroys, and then finally, how it's mastered. So firstly then, how sin crouches. See how the Lord warns Cain in verse 7. Sin is crouching at your door. It's a frightening image, isn't it? Imagine going home tonight after church, getting to your front door. The idea that something is lying in wait, crouching nearby. It's a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible of wild animals. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you've seen one of those David Attenborough documentaries. So you can picture, I don't know what it is, maybe a leopard crouching in the long grass, waiting waiting before suddenly it springs and it takes down its unsuspecting prey and that the Lord says to Cain is what sin is like it crouches like a predator and why does a leopard crouch before it attacks well to hide itself to make itself look small and unthreatening just like our sin does Oh, it's not that bad. It's not a big problem. Sin crouches. And it crouches where we least expect. Here, did you notice? In Cain's worship. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. 
the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry. Two brothers, two offerings, one accepted, the other not. Why? Was God being unfair? Was he playing favourites? I'm sure Cain thought so. You're never happy, are you? Remember that lie that we saw last week that started in the garden that God isn't really good? I'm sure Cain thought this was really God's problem, not his. But what's actually going on? What's the real difference between the offerings of these two brothers? I don't think it's what they brought, but the heart they brought it with. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Abel brought his offering by faith, as an expression of his love and trust of the God who provided for him. See how verse 4 says he offers fat portions of the firstborn of his flock? Abel brings the first and the best to the Lord because he loves him and his heart's full of thankfulness to him. And what about Cain? Well, he does his bit. He brings some of the fruit of the soil because that's what God requires. But Cain's offering is not a gift of love. It's a transaction, an attempt to buy God round. He's not loving God, he's using him to win his favour. And when Cain does his bit and God withholds what he's due, that makes him furious, doesn't he? How dare he? (coughs) Last week, in Romans 1, we saw how sin begins with disordered worship. In our exchanging worship of the real God for something else. And that's what Cain's doing here. Even as he comes to church. He's not worshipping God. He's worshipping himself. He's made his life, his worship, really all about him. Him getting what he really deserves. The reformer Martin Luther described as a sinful people as being curved in on ourselves. Everything. All about me. And I think that's helpful. Because the risk as we think about crouching sin is that it's very easy then to externalise it. Oh, so I can avoid responsibility because it's not really me, is it? I'm just a victim of it. When really, the danger that's crouching for Cain and for me is my own selfish, curved-in heart that I can twist to make even the right things I do into something monstrous. And because my self-worship crouches, it can be hard to spot. But there are giveaways, just like there were for Cain. First, his anger. What is it that makes you fly off the handle? When that colleague at work or that housemate really pushes your buttons, is it really just about them? Or is it because they made me look bad? Or because they disturb the comfort that I deserve after the hard day I've had? And when I'm angry at God because of something he's not given me, is that because I think he owes me after all the ways I serve him? Cain was angry. And he was envious. Oh yes. Abel gets it all, doesn't he? 
Well, my life sucks. His life is just dripping with favour. Do you recognise that voice? Why do they? Why do they get to live in that house, God? Why do they get to get married, or be so popular, or so gifted? And in those moments, who am I really worshipping? And do I see where sin crouches? And then secondly, how sin destroys. That's the next thing the Lord tells Cain about his sin in verse 7. It desires to have you. Because sin isn't a plaything. It's a predator. So often we, we play about with our sin, don't we? We indulge it, knowing it's wrong, but at the same time, believing oh, it's pretty harmless. But I wouldn't let my kids play in a leopard enclosure. And we need to know that the sin that's crouching in our hearts, it's waiting to devour and to destroy. Of course, Cain doesn't want to listen to God's warning. So, so we see what follows. As verse 8, Cain takes his brother out into the field and he murders him. Vents all his resentment on the one who's got what he deserves. And it's told, isn't it, in, in such a matter-of-fact way. In all its banal brutality. Sin's never a harmless indulgence. Naughty but nice. No, sin destroys. Cain's envy destroys his brother. The same way our gossip can destroy someone's reputation. Or lies can destroy a relationship. Or backbiting destroy a church. And we see here how sin destroys Abel. But I think we also need to see how it destroys Cain. See the destructive dynamic that sin unleashes in our lives. It desires to have you, God says. Yeah, Cain, first you'll choose it. But then it will choose you. Because sin, it's like an addiction. Now, I want to tread carefully here. I'm not a doctor. And there's lots about addiction I don't understand. And I'm not saying that addiction and sin are the same thing. I also know that some of us will have painful first-hand experience of this. Maybe personally or with a family member. So please forgive me if I'm clumsy. But I do think that the way addiction can take hold of a person gives a window into the enslaving power of sin in all our lives. Just think for a minute, why are those sins that we keep returning to so hard to stop? That attitude, that thing we do that we wish we didn't. I think it's because when we take hold of them, we find they start to take hold of us. And they don't let go. Do you find that? Sin desires to have you. Remember what Jesus told the crowd in our second reading. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. When we choose to sin, we think we're being free agents, choosing to do what we want. And in a sense, we are. I rarely sin against my will. I choose to do it. And in a sense... Uh, Drug addict chooses to inject heroin, don't they? No one's forcing his hand. But in another sense, of course, he's helplessly enslaved. Because his addiction has had him. Just like Cain's has his. And ours does too. Did you notice who Jesus says this applies to? Everyone 
who sins. That's all of us, isn't it? It's one reason his listeners find what he says so offensive. Because Jesus is saying we're all addicts. All in different ways, but all enslaved to our sin. And like Cain, that sin that enslaves us then begins to destroy us. It starts here, did you notice, by destroying Cain's conscience. See how coldly shrugs off God's question in verse 9. Am I my brother's keeper? How can he be so remorseless? Well, because unchecked sin sears our conscience. Gradually stops us feeling the horror of what we've done. Till eventually, those, well, those internet images that once cut us to the quick, now leave us cold. Sin can destroy our conscience. And destroy our peace. See where Cain's actions lead in verse 12? To be a restless wanderer on the earth. Alienated by his sin from the presence of the Lord. Verse 14. From the only one in whom we find true rest. So where does that leave him? Always on the move. Restlessly seeking after peace anywhere except the one place that it can be found. At home. In right relationship with the God of peace. And that restless wandering, it won't stop for Cain. Even when in verse 17 he builds himself a city. Did you see that? His DIY attempt to provide himself with security and identity somewhere other than God. And it won't stop for us either. While we're in the grip of our sin, which however hard we try, devours our peace. See how sin destroys And then finally, how sin is mastered. Sin desires to have you, the Lord tells Cain, but you must rule over it. Yes, but how? If sin is that subtle and that it's enslaving, who on earth has any chance of mastering it? It's not Cain, is it? Yes, his birth was full of expectation. And I think the background is God's amazing promise that that we saw last week in Genesis 3. Verse 15, the child of Eve who would crush evil. And so when Cain's born, everyone's excitedly asking, is this him? Is he here? And instead, evil eats him alive, doesn't it? There's no hope from Cain. And there's no hope from those who follow. From from his family line, all those names that Mary read, that leads, did you see, verse 23, to Lamech. A man so ruled by violence, he'd kill you if you looked at him the wrong way. Do you see what we're being shown? With each passing generation, sin's not being mastered, is it? It's growing. It's establishing its horrible grip on humanity. All of us knowing that we need to rule over it. But finding we can't. And that means that if rescue is ever to come, It'll need to come from outside of us. Humanity will never be able to save ourselves. Now our only hope will be will the one who's been speaking to Cain all along. Did you notice how kind and patient the Lord is with him? It's just like we saw last week in the garden. Not demanding, not, not quick to find fault as Cain believes he is. But gently warning, verse 7. Gently urging him to come clean. Verse 9. And even when he pronounces judgment on Cain, as he must, 
because he's perfectly good. And verse 10, the shed blood of one of his infinitely precious image bearers cries out to him for justice. Even then, God's justice is softened by undeserved mercy. Verse 15, protecting Cain from the worst consequences of the life of sin that he's chosen. Yeah, if salvation is to come, it's only going to come from this God. And as our chapter ends, I think, again, there's just the tiniest hint of how he'll do it. Did you notice that, that the chapter starts and ends in, in almost the same way, with the, with the birth of a baby? When an Old Testament account does that, take notice. It's telling you something. It's, it's getting you to spot the difference. So verse 1, Eve celebrates. Did you see that with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man? See what she's saying? Yes, God, he's helped, but, but me, I'm the one who's done it. And then at the end, verse 25, the birth of Seth. It's a bit different, isn't it? See what Eve says. God has granted me another child. Now she's seeing it, not as achievement, but as gift. And although we'll only see it much, much later, that's the way humanity's rescue will come. Not by our achievement, but by God's gift. The gift of another child, who be born not by human planning and conception, but the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. As God himself takes human flesh to come to our rescue. Where Cain brutally shrugged off his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? This God took on our humanity. So that he could call us brothers and sisters. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. So that he could live the human life we never could. Sin crouching all around him. But never once mastered by it. And then, as our sinless brother, so that he could be killed as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that his shed blood, Hebrews 12 gloriously tells us, could speak a better word than the blood of Abel. Cry out, not, now you'll have to pay. But look, I've paid it in full. So that through him, as part of his family, sinners like us can be brought home from our restless wandering. That's how sin is mastered. As we see what Jesus has done to rescue us from it. And trusting him frees us from sin's enslaving hold on our lives. Yes, we'll still battle sin and we'll still fail. But united to our brother Jesus, we really can start to say no. To rule over the sin that spoils and destroys in our life don't need to despair if you're here this evening and you feel like your sin has you don't need to despair he came for you run to Jesus trust him when he tells you if the sun sets you free you'll be free indeed let's have a moment to be quiet and then I'll lead us in a prayer